1: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game.
0: This is the Power Producers Podcast, production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power?
1: Everybody is in for a treat today. We officially have our first homeless guest. Actually, (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Chris Cotton from Autofix SOS is a very unique individual in that he truly drives around the country to visit his clients in a travel trailer or RV. I don't remember which, but I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about that because it's absolutely fascinating to me. And truthfully, I'm envious. It's something I wish I was able to do. And my wife and I have talked about it, but with four kids and a golden retriever, it's just not in the cards right now.
2: Oh, I, I've traveled around and seen people with way more kids and way more dogs doing it. So, so you could do it if you want to, it's just, and that's what I tell everybody. If you, you just have to make the decision and, uh, and cut loose and go get after it. Um, gotcha, I don't know, several years ago, five, six years ago, we we're driving down the road after Thanksgiving and, uh, after visiting family and the wife, Kimberly is seeing all these RVs go by and she's like, what if we just did that? And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, what if we just, what if we just did that like full-time every time? And so I am the, you don't want to throw a gauntlet down to me because I, you give me eight minutes and I'll figure out a way to make stuff happen. Um, (laughs) which is a blessing and a curse both at the same time. But so I thought about it for probably eight, 10 minutes. I'm like, Hey, you know what? I think, I think we could probably do this if we start, you know, planning it now. So three years ago, um, we packed up into, uh, we have a fifth wheel trailer, um, packed up we sold our home sold 99 percent of our belongings everything that we don't have with us is in a in a storage unit in wichita falls texas and we hit the road so after we left we left texas and went to florida colorado washington state california arizona and now here we're here in albuquerque new mexico and we love it our 16 year old daughter travels with us full time and uh It really gives me a great opportunity to see shops all across the country and get in and work behind the counter a little bit as we go and and visit my clients and then other people that aren't even my clients.
1: You know, I think it's funny, man, because I am very much the same way in terms of how I process things and make decisions. I don't take days to think about anything. And that could be a blessing and that could be a curse, just like you said, because you tend to make some bad decisions, but you can also course correct quickly. But I have found that by seizing opportunity, the second I see it, I actually have been more successful and won more times than I've lost because I've not been afraid to make a quick decision and go after something before anybody else sees that opportunity. And um, you know, I just haven't been able to get over that hurdle yet on the traveling around with the kids but it's gonna happen it's gonna happen one day um we've already talked about it my wife and i would love to do it when when we retire and i think it's cool man i always enjoy following you on social media and seeing you pump up the different shops that you visit and just live vicariously through your mountain stream fishing and some of the food that i see you post too it's oh, awesome yeah,
2: yeah so let have, me ask go ahead. go ahead i was gonna say we have a great time uh, like i said we travel as a family yesterday of course everybody we're all physical distancing or whatever. So we hopped in the truck and drove two, two hours north and we're in the mountains, like next to a stream. That's where we had lunch yesterday. So,
1: yeah. Nice. You can't beat that. So let me ask you this, man. Everybody we bring on the show, we talk to them about what their daily routine is. And it's amazing to see how people who are successful in their businesses and their careers are very, very regimented in terms of how they start their day. It's crazy it is, as it is, I'm regimented. I, you could write it, you could set your watch off of my daily routine. So I'm interested in how you adapt that to being on the road and what's that daily routine look like, or is it, you know, the same general principles, but you have to be a little bit more flexible dependent on what's going on.
2: Um, I'm pretty solid with my routine. Uh, I get up every morning, depending on which coast I'm hitting. If I have clients on the East coast, I'm up at four 30. Um, Uh, unfortunately we lost our dog in December. I used to get up, take her to the bathroom first thing in the morning and then, and then get out. But so now I get up. Um, I I have, I have a separate email account that I have nothing that I read, but blogs and, um, informational emails, what's going on in the country, stuff like that from different sources like financials and everything. So now, now I get up, I do that. Uh, I also listen to a a podcast called Business Wars. I don't know if you've ever listened to that one or not, Um, but it's right now I'm listening to one Starbucks versus Dunkin' Donuts or Dunkin' and um, it, it goes through the history of how it got started, what they did, how, you know, how they moved and maneuvered and, and then I do that for about 30 minutes to an hour. And then I cook breakfast. I have um, three eggs, three slices of bacon and half avocado every morning for breakfast. I cook breakfast for me and Kimberly. And then it's um, back to the phones, taking care of customers, um, catching up on social media, looking at client social media and other stuff like that.
1: I'm going to tell you what, man, it's funny. I have two comments on that. Number one, since we have been doing this and surrounding ourselves with people who are much smarter than me, I have gotten a lot of good resources in terms of books and podcasts and everything else. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really cool um, podcast that I'm definitely going to add to my regimen. I I like stuff like that. And it's funny from the entrepreneurial side of things um, several years ago, where we live in Florida, we did not have a single Starbucks number one that had a drive through. If it did have, if it did have a drive through, it was always on the left-hand side of the road when all of the traffic was going the opposite way. And I told my wife, mm-hmm. I said, Starbucks literally could double their sales if they just opened up another store across the street from the ones that they have here. You hate so turn left. I refuse to turn <laughs> left, man. There are, there, there are a few idiosyncrasies that I have in my life, but one of them is I will make a right and go around the block to go and not have to make a left-hand turn to get into somewhere. I hate making a left in because it means I've got to make a left to get out. And I just, I, I I actually probably save time doing that, but there's also studies that show how much more dangerous it is to make left hand turns around traffic. So I wish I could tell you, I had scientific evidence, but it's really just something that's a pet peeve and irritates me. And I've always done it and probably always will, even when I'm driving around the country in my RV. I,
2: I do the same thing. I don't ever, I don't turn left. I'd rather turn right. And if, uh, if we're traveling down the interstate and you have to go to the bathroom and, and it's on the other side, you better hold it till the next one. Cause I'm not getting, <laughs> I'm not getting off and going over the overpass. I'm, I'm only going on the right hand side.
3: That's awesome. So how'd you originally get involved in auto shops? Were you a shop owner?
2: Gosh, no. So I've been in the auto repair industry for over 27 years now. Um, I was the, you know, back when I was a kid, I, we didn't have ADD, ADHD and all that stuff. Um, I was a voracious reader, but if you handed me a book and said, Chris, you have to read this book. If I read the first page and didn't like it, I'd throw it back at you. Um, so I, I went to college, I uh, was bored, bored out of my mind and found myself, you know, in the stacks at the library till all hours of the night. Four or five hours reading books that uh, that weren't part of my coursework at all, um, and just got really bored with it. I saw an ad in the paper for a service writer um, at a at a Goodyear shop that did re- tires and repair work and everything like that, and I thought, oh, this seems like it might be interesting. Uh, I've always been in the customer service industry. Um, if you ask me, I'd tell you I'm only 47, but I've been in the customer service industry since I was, for 42 years. My granny had a um, a restaurant and a bar, and my dad ran a lumber yard. So, you know, I, I started washing dishes at five years old in my granny's restaurant, and that's kind of where where that side of it comes from. But back to the auto repair. Uh, so I answered the ad. I did really good at it, it was zero training. Uh, I'm the last person you want working on your vehicle, but the first person you want helping you with your business. So um, I, I started with that. And if something happened and I left the auto repair industry, I always came back to it. It was always something that I was good at and it was easy for me. Uh, several years later, my wife and I had the opportunity to buy our own store. So we bought that. Uh, then we expanded into a second location. Um, and I, I really found my passion for coaching others. So I was able to transition out of the actual day-to-day running of the business and out of the business itself. And, and here I am. I, I love doing what I do. That's why I get out of bed every morning is to help other shop owners.
1: So it's funny, man. A um, couple things based on what I just heard you say. Number one, you're right. There was no ADD ADHD or anything when we were kids, even though I 100% would have been diagnosed with it because right. I because I have been as an adult um and I'm supposed to take meds which I don't uh, most of the time but um you know we were di- we were there was no medicine the medicine you got was either a belt or a paddle or whatever your mother could find laying around as you ran past her with a smart mouth so she could could whack you with it the second thing is um to your point about not being interested in your coursework in college I think that there's a lot of people that are that way. And I've read, I don't remember which book it was that I read. It was either something that Malcolm Gladwell wrote, or it was something, it may have been Tom Stanley, one of the Millionaire Mind, Millionaire Next Door books, but the statistic was about the average CEO in a Fortune 500 company only being a C student when they were in college. And they weren't straight A students. The reason that they have been able to be successful in the work environment is because they had a balance between academics and social life when they were in college. Now, I had a far more <laughs> weighted social life than I did academics. And it was funny because I really, look, I'm going to go ahead and call it like it is. I had a really bad advisor when I was in college. When you're when you're a kid, I was young going into school. When you're young going in, you really need somebody to give you reasonable advice when you get on campus. And the first problem I had was my with my advisor was my freshman year when I got signed up for beginning accounting at 8 o'clock on Thursday morning. And Wednesday night was $5 drink and drown. So like, <laughs> you know what? If I'm an advisor, I'm going to do a little research about what's going on Wednesday night before I have a freshman kid who grew up in an extremely structured conservative home and was basically like my Amish year in the wild by freshman year of college. The second problem I had, though, going back to coursework, was when I got signed up for or was allowed to sign up for a senior level British literature course. And it was every bit as horrible as it sounds. It was absolutely (laughs) terrible. It was so bad. I went to the first class. I got my textbooks. I got the syllabus. We went to the next class. I did not, and by the way, this is one of those woke professors, you know, who was the, he was probably smoking weed before class, hot box in the, you know, the teacher's lounge or whatever. And <laughs> he was, he said, I'm there are no assignments. There are no papers. 100% of your grade will be your final exam. And so I'm like, this is exactly what I need in my life. This guy doesn't care if I go to class or not. He's really cool. And so I just basically didn't go. And so I figured, okay, I'll just cram and read all of this British literature crap before the final. And I'll go in. If I can pull a C out of this, I'm doing good. So me and my buddy, Larry Kunzelman were, um, I'll never forget this. We show up for the final and the teacher gets up in front of the class and he says, I don't ever do this, but I'm going to give everybody in here an opportunity to earn bonus points on this exam. And I was like, oh, here we go. So he goes up and he writes on the board. He said, if you can answer this question, I will give you an additional 10 points on whatever your grade ends up being. And so he writes on the board, "If please name the two guys in the back of the class. (laughs) So I wrote me and Larry's name down, turned my paper in and left. So I know I got at least a 10 uh, in Needless to say, I was uh, not back that next semester. I needed to take a bit of a break. Uh, and so it is what it is. The second run at college was much more difficult because I was paying for myself to go through working at a grocery store or running grocery store 80 hours a week. So I understand what you're telling me. Your skill set is that you know you're the guy that you want to work on your business or help you Run your business. Ultimately, you had your own shop. You were in complete control of that, but some you weren't getting something there. There was something missing, and I'm the same way. I, you know, I've worked at other agencies before. I could have been very, very successful just staying a producer for somebody else. I could have made great money. I could have um, had a good retirement. I'd have been partner status, but I think that each of us that's entrepreneurial in nature can't just stop at that. We have to have more. We have to have control. we there, there's a part of us, a fire in our belly, a need that needs to be fulfilled by actually going out and, and seizing opportunity and watch and building things and watching it grow and it you're captive to one place and that's what your real desire is, at least in my mind, um, you know, you're never going to be totally fulfilled. So I'm interested in what led you to actually leave having your own shop. I know you have a heart for helping other people, but what were the, what was the driver behind that?
2: Well, so when I had my business, I was just like everybody else. I mean, I'm a numbers person. I can look at your income statement and probably tell you in 15 minutes or less, 90% of what's wrong with your business. Um, so I was always, uh, you know, my caveman brain. I'm always ready to sell, always ready to make the next kill. And when I bought the shop, you know, we went from million two, million three in years to almost two million dollars in sales. And the bottom line, I didn't know what was wrong with it, but I knew it wasn't right. So uh, I hired a coach or consulting group to to help me, and they really helped me straighten it out, fix it out, fix my margins, and um, a couple of years into it, they came to me and they're like, "Hey, Chris, we're expanding. Would you like to be uh, an absentee coach and shop owner, and and get in on that side of it?" And I thought, "Oh, that seems seems interesting. I'll try it." You know, I grew up playing football and sports and everything, so I'm used to being coached. I'm used to coaching others. I did that for a couple of years. Um, I really liked it. I but I'm I'm a self employed man, and I don't like being employed by anybody else. So after a couple of years of that, you know, it's being a client of that company and then going up and seeing how it's run, it's kind of like, um, throwing the curtain back and seeing the wizard of Oz, you know? So while I had a fun time there, I didn't really agree with some of the stuff that they were doing. So I left, um, and then really kind of floated for about a year. And then I had one of my clients, um, call me and said, Hey, Chris, I need some help. And that's what, uh, uh, ignited the fire, or ignited the fire, and put me on the path I'm on now. Um, and then, you know, like I said, every day I get up to do that. That's that's my purpose. That's my, you know, my point in life. Um, and I, and really, two part of it is I have clients that come to me that they're like, Chris, I'm ready to shut the shop down. I I can't do this anymore. And I'm like, hey, let's just give it a month. Let's try it and see. And then, you know, a year later, they've gone from. $200,000 in sales for the whole year to $800,000 in sales. Um, and they have a business that they can rely on now.
3: How do you determine who you want to work with? Like, what's your qualifying a prospect process look like?
2: The, the, You know, there's not anybody that's really too small to work with. And that's some of the other coaching companies That's they'll do, they'll be like, they're too small and they can't afford me, whatever. I have to have a relationship with my client or else it doesn't work. Um, If, if the relation, if the client and I can't, if, you know, during the coaching process, if I say something that hurts your feelings or motivates you to want to do better, that's where the real change happens. Um, and there, you know, I'll, I'll get some clients somewhere that they want change, they'll seek you out, but they don't want to do any of the work to make the change happen. And so they don't take a phone call or they don't do whatever. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I may have gotten off, trape- off topic there just a little bit, but, um,
1: no, I mean, I don't I don't think that's altogether different than the, what we deal with. Right. I mean, we we want to be able to try and help everybody, but people can only be helped as much as they're willing to help themselves. Right. right. And, you know, we visit the sick and at Florida Risk, we're looking for people who have workers comp problems typically or some sort of an issue. And we have a process. You know, we're very, very um, stringent on certain things uh, in terms of what it takes to work with us honest and open communication by far is number 1 and i think that you know you have to you have to get on the same side of the table with somebody when you're going to truly be a consultant or an advocate for them and help them to see that you're doing that one of the things that i do very very early in a relationship even like at the prospecting phase is i have to get people to be open with me I know they have problems, but I don't always know what every single contributing factor to those problems is, and so I use the attorney-client privilege uh, line all the time, and just say, "Look, what you say, you know, we're on the same team here. What you tell me is between the two of us. Yes, it is one hundred percent my responsibility to be your mouthpiece in the marketplace in terms of going for to talk to underwriters or loss control representatives or whatever else." But use me to be a translator, because how you frame things sometimes is all the difference in the world. And so when you when you have that conversation, at least in our world, I have found that you build trust relatively quickly, and that's only cemented by the fact that you deliver on that over time. So, you know, every every month, it's more and more communication. If they have some claims issues, they call you first and ask for your advice. And that's when I know, that i've got a client for pretty much life at that point is when i'm the first person they call to find out what my thoughts are on something but obviously for you and for me too because we deal with a lot of the same dynamics and it's an interesting dynamic when you have to go into somebody else's business and talk to them about what they're doing wrong and offer their advice to improve so i'm interested in how you balance that how do you how do you polish that when you're going into a shop that's struggling and even though they know they're struggling, there's still, you know, you still have to be a little bit of a velvet hammer, I suppose, when you, when you go in and give <laughs> some advice.
2: Right. It, it's, it's not so much. I mean, there are some people that are just, you know, it's like the 80, 20 rule. There's some not heads that just can't get out of their own way. And and I don't deal with a lot of those people um, just because I can, I can afford to fire them and, and go on to customers that I really want to deal with. Um, as far as like a, a customer goes and going in and looking, you know, I provide an unemotional, um, guiding or, or accountability. I don't, I don't have any of the BS, um, from the, from the owner client or the owner employee side of it. So I can cut, you know, cut through everything really quick and see that. The other thing is it's not so much that they're doing things wrong on purpose. It's just that they don't know what they don't know. And, and, and a lot of shop owners are technicians that are really good. They're really good at fixing cars, but they're not good with people. First of all, if they were good with people, they wouldn't be technicians. They wouldn't be under the hood of a car because, you know, the, the big thing here lately with the crisis and everything is all the technician owners, not all of them, most of them, you know, their thing is to go run under under the hood of a car and work on it until the crisis clears. And and so I have to pull them back and do that. Um, but it's, in and, and a lot of what I say, some of it sinks in, some of it doesn't, but now in the crisis, you know, what have I been talking about for months with people? Social media, make sure that your social media is up to date, uh, which is more important now than ever for a business that's open and trying to get clients. Um, make sure that we, in a lot of what we do, we have text to pay now, and I have um, customers where they don't, actually ever see their customers before this. And so those people are really thriving now. And the ones that didn't embrace technology aren't, um, I just have to get them out of their own way and see the proof of concept, what we're doing. I mean, I've done this with hundreds of shops now and I've been doing it forever. And I don't, I don't make recommendations lightly. And the reason why I do make
1: recommendations is because I've seen it work. So we have launched, I don't know if you followed it or not, I know we're connected on on Facebook and, and other social media channels, but we have launched a commercial insurance training program that is a virtual training program for agencies across the country that want to get into middle market commercial sales. And I have used the same process for getting in front of prospects and turning them into clients for between 15 and 20 years now and I used the I used this made the statement on one of the podcasts we recorded previously with Bernie Borges that as you look at the evolution of social media the process and the principles themselves have not changed at all in the 10 years since he wrote his book marketing 2.0 but the platforms have the platforms themselves have evolved. But the process has been the same. And the same thing holds true in our world. You know, the process itself has not changed one bit. I mean, cold calling still works. You know, how you follow up after that is usually what determines your ultimate level of success. Really, two things the volume of cold calls that you do, and then the method of follow up and the consistency, whatever that method is, just the consistency of follow up. But you know, one of my sayings that I use all the time is that it's always the person, it's never the process. The process works, it's the person who is supposed to implement that. And so I assume you've got a process, you know, for you to work with the number of shops that you work with, obviously you have to adapt a little bit to the culture of that shop until you can bring them around to where you want them to be. But I'm interested in, because when you coach other people, they always want results and they expect you to guarantee them. I actually had a call with a guy who asked me if I would guarantee the enrollment fee to Killing Commercial uh, based on results. And I said, you want me to guarantee that my process works? And he said, yes. I said, well, I've got a multi-million-dollar book of business that says – that my process works i said i guess what i would need from you is are you going to guarantee guarantee me that you were going to execute my process to the letter with the same level of passion and hunger that i do every single day and you're not going to deviate from the path at all that's what you're asking me to do because the process itself is finite it, you don't all you have to do is follow directions i find that where people who end up not being successful in any portion of the process is because they thought they knew better. They thought that they, okay, well, we fixed this, we fixed this, we're making a little forward progress. and eh, let me change this. I don't need to do it quite this way. And boom, next thing you know, it's one little deviation from the process then the whole train is off the rails. So I'm interested in, you know, your experience from that standpoint, when you go in and you work with these people, you know, what do you do from an accountability standpoint to make sure they stay on your process and of those people that, you know, quite frankly, haven't worked out for you, how much of it has to do with the fact that it's them deviating from what your expectations are. And the other thing is, how much of it is just you you let a bad apple slip through the cracks, because I know we let that happen sometimes, too. We We get hungry on the front end, and we bring people in. I mean, this holds true for clients at Florida Risk, too. You know, next thing you know, two months in, it's like, holy cow, how did I miss on this one? I mean, we're far from perfect, we're better than we used to be, but I think sometimes we get blinded by opportunity and it it puts us in a bad position.
2: Right. So a lot of what I do, the process is like math, right? So math If you do math correctly, if you do an algebra equation correctly, then you'll always find the answer. But if you miss a step or skip a step along the way, then you'll come up with the wrong answer. That's, that's a given. There's no, there's no getting around that. So the process is math is proven. I'm not a cheap date. I don't profess to be, um, one of the first things that I do is we go through a discovery call process after we've decided that yes, we want to move forward. And that's kind of where we go through the discovery process, like where you were talking about, where you're basically saying, Hey, I'm your attorney. You can tell me anything. After that, we move forward to the to the profit side of the business where we go through and double check their profits, make sure that they have a, a good gross profit margin and see what their income versus their outflow is. And then From there, I like to put in the cash flow side of it, because if we're not, if we're not making a profit, we're not managing our cash, then the rest of it kind of just goes by the wayside. So I like to get out there. I like to prove that I'm worth the investment and I'm worth the time and move that forward. And then from there we go into employee handbooks and and I'm a little more fluid. And as I see some of those problems, there's some some things that need to be fixed before we can go to the other. But I have a timeline and everything set out. Um,
1: you know, it, it's interesting, man, because you, you brought up a good point when you said that you're not a cheap date. And that's one of the things that I've realized as um, we've launched the commercial insurance sales program you have to figure out what that price point looks like. I'm not a cheap date by a long stretch, you know, and I've got 20, almost 20 years of experience of success riding on me working with somebody. And so there's, you know, I can take the learning curve and almost wipe it out completely. And I mean, I can take a 10 a year learning curve and put it into three months if somebody's willing to go through the process the way that they need to as i was trying to determine how i was going to land on the pricing for that i realized that you needed to make it you needed to make it a pain point it had to be painful enough that people were going to buy in because i have friends of mine that have online you know coaching for different marketing pro- marketing strategies or whatever else and i was talking to one of them and they told me 70% of the people that sign up for their on demand training don't ever even use it.
2: Right. Yeah. It's and I said, this
1: person. is, yeah, this is not going to happen, you know, because for me, I'm not wired that way. If I knew that 70% of the people in my program were not using my program, I I would not be able to sleep at night. And I'm not saying there's anything, anything wrong with the person who's doing that. It's just, that's how I'm wired. I want a hundred percent of the people to be bought in and dialed in. And so I realized that, you know, there has to be a pain point. Do I not get some people, some agency owners into the program because of the price point? Yes. But most of those are agencies I don't want to work with to begin with. Right. The second part of it is, is it can't be punitive, right? So you need to have it be painful, but not punitive because it can't be to the point where the shops who really could afford you, but really need you, can't afford you anymore and now all of a sudden they're sort of in a death spiral. So I think I think that's a really good point with regard to how you how you set expectations on the front end. And I think it's like anything else in sales, man. You know, if you people buy Bentleys because they're a Bentley and there it's a symbol and right. the Bentley typically delivers on the price point and the quality and obviously they can charge for it. Not everybody drives a Bentley. Okay. You know, Bentley's fine with that. I'm pretty sure.
2: Yeah. They don't, they don't care. I mean, they, 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 they survive just fine without it. I do (laughs) want to go back and talk to the accountability piece uh, for for just a minute. Um, When I'm building a relationship, I want, I want the customer to leave the phone or leave the, the, however we're talking or speaking or whatever. I want them to leave them in thought, and I want them to know that if they didn't follow through with doing something, that they actually feel bad for it, or they feel like they let me down. And, and I go back to, I had a great football coach in high school. The man didn't have to speak to me, he didn't have to say a word, all he had to do was look at me. And I knew whether I had lived up to the expectation or if I had disappointed him. And I wanted to to make, I wanted to meet that, meet the goal. Um, So much so that if I thought he was disappointed in me, I would almost burst into tears because, and so that's how I move forward with my clients. I want to build a relationship with my clients that during the, you know, the Ronald Reagan process, I call it the trust, but verify. Um, If, if I verify and they didn't follow through on the steps, I want them to be upset with themselves. And I really, I really strive for that.
3: I had a, a basketball coach in high school. It was the same way, man. I mean, he, he he would shoot you a stare across the court and and you knew right away whether or not <laughs> you should have made that play or not. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I love that we're talking about the process. Um, in a previous career, I sold office supplies business to business and we had a process. We had a pitch. We saw 30 to 50 businesses a day, depending on the day. Um, and what I found when I had reps on my team that were, you know, not closing, not hitting their quota, you know, not, not closing sales every day. It was because they were deviating from the pitch, you know, it was a proven thing that worked. And when they went in and tried to wing it and and not, you know, take the advice and the coaching, that's, that was always the issue. So obviously... You kind of alluded to it before, uh, when you said the the knotheads. I want to go back to that for a second, you know, those those people that are a little bit hard headed. And, you know, you find it a lot in the auto industry, I would have to imagine. I mean, calling on a bunch of businesses you know, like we do now um, and like I have done in the past, auto is one of them. Sometimes they're a little bit trickier to deal with, a little bit more introverted. They want to be the people that are under the hood, as you said, sometimes. So what's been uh your your worst experience you've had so far?
2: Uh, Gosh, I don't know. I've I've had a lot of great ones and I've had a couple that weren't so great. Um, Again, Mm -hmm. the ones that hire me and then don't take the phone call, like um, when I worked for the National Coaching Company, I hated that because I knew that when I called at 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, that that person was not going to call. No matter, I could email, I could call, we followed up with emails. Um, And being there, we just kind of did it. uh, For me now, I'll do that for about a month, but if you can't, if you can't stop and do something that you agreed to do, then I'll leave a message on your phone and say, Hey, this isn't working out. I'm going to delete your invoice. I'm not going to waste any more of my time with you. Um, From a relationship standpoint, that's the ones that bug me the most, but I have had others. I've got one in mind that the guy came to me, he's like, Chris. I should have a great running business but I don't and I don't know why and I'm like okay send me over the financials so he sent me the financials over I looked at them and I'm like I don't know who's doing it but either your service rider or your wife is stealing money from the company I go we'll we'll figure this out and we'll work on the rest of it we well, come to find out both of them were stealing money from him oh my
1: god um, awesome.
2: so we we fired the service rider divorced the wife um I'll back up for just a minute. When he came to me, I don't even know how he got this way because I've never seen anybody get this bad with the IRS and everything else, but he, he, um, owed over 300 grand in back sales taxes, um, IRS taxes, workers comp that he had never paid and everything else. So like when we took all this together, it was like 300 grand, um, some of that goes to the wife, but he didn't know that it wasn't getting paid, or he wasn't wasn't following a he wasn't following a cash flow process to figure out that the money was going through and the bills were getting paid. So that's one part of it. Um, so he's like, I don't know if we can save this. I go, well, I've 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 never not saved anybody yet, so I have full confidence that we can figure it out. I don't know how long it's going to take, but this is you know what we're going to do. Um, long story short we got him out. We got squared away with everybody. So they didn't owe a penny in less than two years. And then he stopped taking my phone calls and I'd call nobody there, call nobody there. The service rider. I'm like, Hey, where's this guy at? And he's like, Oh, well, he built a brand new shop out at his house and everything. So after, after digging that out, going all through that, he stopped taking the phone call. He ended up spending money ridiculously again, and the last I heard, he was back in trouble with the IRS and everybody else again. So that
1: he that one probably, probably back with his wife too.
2: <laughs> uh, could be. I have no But you know, when when um, yeah, I get pissed off about that one, but it really didn't have anything to do other than I showed him how to do it, showed him how to do it correctly, and then he just disregarded the whole thing. And you know, it
3: has got to be immensely mid- really frustrating.
2: Some people you can't fix, and there's a great quote from a movie um with kevin costner in it the one with ashton kutcher where he's he's sitting there he goes he goes when do you stop and he goes uh, kevin costner looks at him and he goes i swim as hard as i can for as long as i can and the sea takes the rest so as long as you're with me i'll be with you until the end until you quit or until you give up but i will never give up on you
1: i am really glad you didn't quote dude where's my car (laughs) no (laughs) no
3: what's that what's the movie called I the can't Guardian. remember. Uh, the Guardian. The Guardian. It is it is a fantastic movie. Yeah.
1: It really is, man. I I like that movie a lot. I thought it was I get a lot of my uh stuff from movie quotes actually. Typically it's like Tommy Boy, Billy Madison, <laughs> old <laughs> old school things like that. But right. that is that's a good one. Um so I, you know, one of the things that I pledged to myself in 2020 was to learn from my successes. I think so many of us deal with the old cliche about failing forward and learning, you know, learning from your mistakes and learning from your your losses and everything else that you don't take the time to learn from the things that you win at. And so I was on a call with somebody that where I was competing against two very very well-known adversaries and the person ended up hiring me. And I just told him, I said, listen, I said, I always want to know what I could do better when it's time, when, when I lose. But in 2020, I have set myself up to make sure that I learn from why I win. So if you don't mind me asking, why did you pick me over the other two people? Because they were every bit as qualified and maybe even more qualified than what I am. And they gave me the answer and I was appreciative of that information because I think that we missed that mark, man. I don't think that when we win, we ask why we win. So we know what we need to make sure we're replicating every time we go out after that next deal. So my question is, you know, what's your greatest success story? Because it sounded like you were well on your way to a great success story with the last clown <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and then he abandoned the process. And, you know, what, what did you learn from that? And how are you replicating that in other shops that you work with?
2: Um, I have a really good success story, I think. I and, I and I've had a couple that are really kind of similar. Um, I get, you know, like I said, I'm up early, but I, by the opposite, you know, if I'm up at 4.30 or 5.30, then I'm out like a light at 8.30 at night, right? So, so. One of the things I do during the day is I'm cruising through the social media. I, I, I have access to every one of my clients' accounts. So I go through to make sure that there where there was nothing, no customer service issues or anything else like that and some other stuff. And one morning I was looking through and this guy was on a post and he was just like, um, I've been doing this for five or six years. I'm not making any money. I don't have, a. I don't know. It wasn't that he didn't have a clue what he was doing. He just wasn't making it. It just wasn't. It just wasn't going the way he had planned and so i reached out to him on facebook and said hey look if you're if you're willing to put in the time and the effort i'm i'm willing to help you let's let's talk on the phone and let's go from there um and i'll also say that i do that daily like a day doesn't go by where i don't offer to help a shop owner on facebook and 95 percent of those messages never get answered people just For whatever reason, they don't answer it. They don't whatever, and I leave my website. I leave my personal cell phone number and whatever. And again, it's the you know the pain of changing. They'd rather they'd rather wallow in their misery than than be successful. For some people, Um, and so I spent a month with him. Thing we started gaining some traction. And, uh, we met his sales goal for that year. And then he's like, so Chris, he goes, everything's working great. Um, I want to double our sales for next year. And so he wanted to, to basically double from 800,000 in sales to 1.6 million in sales the next year. And I'm like, Whew, that's a, that's a big ask when you're trying to put in, um, the infrastructure and everything like that to do that we didn't quite make it. We ended up at like 1.3 million. But when you take a shop that goes from 800 grand to 1.3 million versus, you know, a shop that the guy was getting ready to just throw in the towel and, and quit. Um, uh, that is a success for me. The other thing is is we were having some cash flow issues. So we put in my my profits and cash flow management process and now we our sales tax is paid on time. We have all of our accounts set up and everything like that. Every you know, the employees get paid on time, parts get paid on time. He doesn't have any uncashed checks in his drawer anymore. He pays himself on time. That to me is probably the one that sticks out in my mind. Um and and I'm a, I got lots of feels for my clients. And if I spent much more time talking about it, I'd probably you probably see me uh, cry from your side of it. Um, but to know that a guy went out there, he hung his shingle out, he took a chance and he didn't know what he didn't know. And I was able to to help him find a way and, you know, kick the can forward and help him stay in business because he wanted he wanted to stay in business. There was no reason for, for him to leave other than the fact that. Um, just some things weren't working out. And so, and since then I've had a couple more, I've had a couple more reach out to me on Facebook and take, take, take the challenge that I throw out there to them and they've been successful as well. So those are the best ones.
3: So you mentioned social media quite a bit there, Facebook and whatnot. Auto shops, obviously notorious for, you know, as you mentioned, uh, not embracing the change and not really being involved in social media. How, how do you navigate that? How do you help them with that?
2: Well, so there's, I kind of like it and then I kind of don't like it. Whenever, whenever a client reaches out to me, first thing I do is send me your website and give me your address. Cause I want to look and see, I want to look at your Facebook. I want to look at your um, Instagram. I want to look at your website. I want to look at your Google my business page and see how much activity there is on there, whether it's updated and claimed. And the thing that drives me nuts is, okay, so 95% of Facebook is free. So all you have to do is stop and take time and make two posts a day, really. And then, so in the beginning, like 12, 15 years ago, you could be on the front page of the internet with just a great Facebook page. You didn't have to do, you didn't have to do any videos. You didn't have to, even back then you couldn't even buy ads back then. It was just like you posting and showing pictures of dirty cabin filters. Well, now you have to be on there every day and you have to have a video, Facebook, Google, the Google robots, YouTube video is where it's at to get your word out. So, um, I go through there and look, but one of the things I chuckle at is, is somebody at one point thought, Hey, I really think I need a Facebook page. And you go look and they haven't made a post from like 2016. I mean, it's just sat there with nothing. Um, and so the future of, the auto repair side of it is, is websites are really great. Google, my business is important, but the Facebook ads as far as cost per click and return on investment, everything like that, that's, that's
1: really where it's at. I'm going to tell you, man, there's a, there's a lot that the auto repair industry body shops, you know, auto repair facilities could embrace in technology that would really take them to the next level. And some of the things that we do inside of the insurance agency could really be translated over to that and and specifically how we use video proposals to address renewal quotes and things like that with our clients so we have the ability to meet them where they want to receive information. We don't, I mean, listen, I'm old school, man. If I'm asking somebody for money and to hire me, I want to be in a suit and tie in their conference room, sitting across the table from them, looking them in the eye, and asking mm-hmm. for the order. I will always be that way. The problem is that at, I shouldn't say it's a problem. The opportunity lies in the fact that the work, the aging workforce is retiring, and the next generation is coming through, and that's not how they are now. Certainly, you know, there's some that are always going to be that way because those values get—I shouldn't say values, but those thought processes get handed down generation to generation to generation, overwhelming majority of them aren't. And for me, it was a mental obstacle for me to um, change and virtually propose to people. But we have been very successful in doing it. We, we can record a video proposal of an insurance program where we're walking through it verbally in doing a screen share So we're essentially presenting to them in exactly the same way that we would present to them if we were sitting across the table from them. The difference is we're not intruding on their day to do it. I saw an interesting post on social media last week. I don't remember where I saw it, but it was on somebody's Facebook page. And it was about a body shop that almost had it right. They They had gotten just that far away from being exactly where I think they needed to be. And it was, which this tells me that this would work. It was a shop where there was a guy that was sitting in front of a computer and he was showing, you know, the different things that needed to happen and where the car was damaged and all that. And there was another person that was holding a cell phone, recording him sitting in front of the computer, walking through that. If they used a service like Loom, which is free or the $9.99 a month version, that guy could have a webcam and and, and and microphone, and he could walk through that with his picture next to it, show all of that stuff, and send that link to a client so they could see exactly what needed to be done, why it needed to be done, how much it was going to cost, and all of that. And I think that would be huge. There may be shops that are doing that. I have to believe that more progressive thinkers are. But you have two different things you need to do to manage technology. Number one of them is number one is you need to bring your shops up to speed and get them into the 21st century. So I really have two questions for you. Number one, how do you do that? And I think that the two hinge together because based on your living situation, you have to leverage technology to get in front of oh, absolutely. your people. And I, and I think that, you know, how I remember it happening in the past has been, Mr. Carruthers, you know, we have your car in here and I just wanted to let you know that we need to do blah, 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 blah. And it's all over the phone. I'm a visual person, man. If I knew how to fix my own car, I wouldn't have it in somebody's shop. So you, you know, telling me all of these things over the phone really means absolutely nothing to me. And I hear Charlie Brown's teacher until I hear the price, you know, you know, and then, then I pay perk up when you tell me what it's going to cost me. But I think that if I had something I could look at where you were explaining it to me and I could actually see it, I would, I would receive that information and understand it better so I'm interested in, in just your thoughts on, on both of those two, uh, statements. So, so if we go
2: back, you know, I always tried to, and this is one of the things that I try to bring to my coaching practice is I try to stay on the forefront of technology and everything else. If we go back to like 2010, 2011, you know, back then we still had flip phones and email. So versus doing that, that's what we did. We would take a flip phone out to the, out to the, the sales, the, the work floor, take pictures of somebody's breaks, their dirty cabin, air filter and everything else. Cause it's the same thing. You're way more successful if you have a visual or you can show somebody versus just trying to paint a picture over the phone. Some people are not good or they're just not good at painting a picture over the phone. And so we would have to take those pictures, copy and paste it into email and send it out. Now, They have, um, there's so many different, I work with a couple of point of sale companies and some other, we call them digital inspections at this point. Um, And the digital inspection, well, um, let me, let me back up. So if we go paperless, right, we can take a tablet, I can go out, take a picture of the um, license plate on your car and that will pull up all your registration information. So I don't even have to, you could drop your keys in my Dropbox. I could go take that picture and then all of your information comes comes over from your registration. I can take my tablet, finish the ticket. I can send it to you and have you sign it virtually from your side of it or click on it and know that you've seen it so you know the, pre, the pre-work that we're going to do then you send it back to me, then I can send it to the technician on his tablet and he does the video and the circles with pictures and everything else and sends it back to me. I can do the estimate, send the estimate back to you. You could approve it via text if we need to if we need to have a phone call, we can. And then once we're completed, I can send that to you and you can pay from your cell phone by taking a picture, all secure, completely and everything. That comes back to me, time stamped and signed. It, it takes care of any legal obligations and everything else. And I can put the keys back in my outgoing Dropbox that you have the code to and you do the code. We don't ever have to talk to each other anymore, which for me, for being a guy that's almost 50, it's kind of weird. But the newer people, the younger people up, they'd rather not do that. And I have a lot of shops in very white collar professional areas where a doctor, a lawyer, those people—they don't have, you know, time's money. They don't have time to talk to you, really, and so it 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 speeds up the repair process for us um, because we don't have to wait for you to get time to call us back, right? Or we're dealing with the assistant, and then you can take that further to like soccer moms and everything else, and whoever. Um, as far as as far as people like that go, they want it done correctly, and they want it done if you tell if you tell um, Mrs. Jones that her van will be ready at 4.02, it better be ready at 4.02. And so, you know, all that speeds up the process and it's, it's pennies. I mean, it, it's, it's really, really cost, um, cost effective, but a lot of people look at that and was like, oh, I have to spend $400 a month for that service or whatever to have like a point of sale and a digital inspection. But It proves out anybody that ever comes to me, I I tell them doing the digital inspection process and that, that will raise your average repair order by $200. So Hmm. if you, if you do
1: for every 10 tickets you do, you'll get an extra $2,000 in sales. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Right. Well, I mean, the thing is too, Chris, you know, in our world, we use HubSpot. HubSpot is where we live for our CRM. It's our marketing, our sales, our service automations. You know, my service contractors, the plumbers, HVAC, electrician guys, they all use Service Titan. And, you know, my my thought process is if, if shops are adopting this, not only is it raising their average ticket, but it's also protecting their rear end too, because it used to be that you'd have the carbon copy stuff that you'd have to have a file. You know, we've gone from paper files to being able to have everything integrated with one system where with the push of a button, every client record is there, including their their sign off on things, their declination on things. Like if they say, Nope, I don't want to have this done right now, and then all of a sudden it causes a bigger issue, you can say, Well, actually here's, you know, here's the <laughs> here's date and time from exactly where you told me. And that's one of the things we like about doing the video quotes, too, because we do a quote, a quote vid for somebody, and we recommend that they increase ordinance and law coverage. And they say, Oh, no, I don't need ordinance and law. And then all of a sudden, they're in an older building, they have a property loss, and it's going to cost them six figures to bring everything up to code, and they don't have enough limit to do it they come back and say, well, you never told me I should have that. Well, actually, if you go to two minutes and 37 seconds into the video, that's exactly where I told you you needed to do it. So I think what percentage of shops would you say that you work with are actually that far advanced right now? I mean, I realize they probably get there once they start working with you, but um, where are they at in the process when you you start? So... That's one
2: of the things that I pretty much demand. And then going through my process, it used to be a a paper courtesy check, but I don't even say that word. That's probably the first time I've uttered that in a year. We do the digital digital vehicle inspection or the DVI. I would say less than 40% of the customers or my clients when they come to me that they do the digital inspection. Um, I even got one in the last couple of months that they were still doing uh, paper invoices with no website, no real system or process at all, and to me, that's just um, you know these these systems will make these systems will make you money if
1: you set them up properly and use them. Um, well, it's funny, man. I did a I did a video that I'll eventually write an article around a couple of weeks ago about why you should treat technology as a team member. And I mean, if you take your technology and you look at what your tech stack cost you, and you equate that to what you would pay for an average service person, like in the insurance world, if I was going to take a CSR and pay them $40,000 a year, or I was going to take that $40,000 and invest it into HubSpot and the automations that surround that, I'm going to get three times the productivity out of that system than I am out of a person. It doesn't mean that we need to replace people with robots. But at the same time, I think that businesses need to look at that as, as an investment in what, how many bodies it will save them and ultimately not just the increase in sales, but the profitability that they enhance as a result of investing in that technology.
2: Right. Well, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, I used another system previously mm-hmm. and I just switched to HubSpot about a month and a half ago. and. And I think, I think they need to, I think they need to sponsor your podcast and me or something like that. I love HubSpot. (laughs) Um, And, and again, it's kind of like what I tell people as far as the coaching goes, I don't care, you know, in a perfect world, you choose me as a coach, but just pick one and go. It's kind of the same thing with HubSpot. I don't care, um, you know, what digital vehicle inspection platform you choose, choose one and then use it every day. Um, And then, so I kind of skipped over your question. What was your question again? No, you're good, man. You, you okay. did great. All right.
3: Power Producers Podcast brought to you by HubSpot. I like it.
2: There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll
3: get you out here on this, Chris. Uh, <laughs> we've got a lot of consultants that you know follow us you know, for a variety of industries and we also have some auto shop owners that follow us too. Tell all them right. how they can find you.
2: So, obviously, you can go to my website. It's www.autofixsos.com. So, that's A-U-T-O-F-I-X-S-O-S.com. You can all Also, email me at chris at autofixsos.com or my cell phone. That's the only phone I use. It's 580-491-3519. Shoot me a text. Give me a call. Um, If I'm busy with a client, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, If you also go to my website or you can go to Facebook and schedule a meeting with me as well through my HubSpot meeting. So
1: we'll throw that back in there. Well, listen, man, you have been generous with your time. I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. The one thing I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt is anytime I talk with Chris Cotton, I leave that conversation smarter and feeling better about myself. So the people that you have as your clients definitely are lucky to have you, Chris, and I wish you nothing but the best in future successes. And again, we really appreciate you being on with us today.
2: Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Anytime. I don't know. I think we've known each other for a couple of years now. We have a couple mutual clients. Uh, I also did want to throw out there really quick. Um, I, I help auto repair shops, but I also help Euro repair shops, diesel repair shops, uh, tire, uh, auto repair and tire shops and quick lube shops. So pretty much anybody in that auto repair space, I can help out.
1: Good deal. They'd be foolish not to engage with you, brother. Again, we appreciate your time and wish you nothing but the best. Stay safe and healthy. And if, uh, I don't know how much further you can go up into the mountains, but if you need to, uh, you you certainly have the means.
2: Yeah, we'd love to. So we're about 5,500 feet right now. And we have a cabin at about 9,000 feet. We couldn't quite get there because of the snow yesterday, but probably another month or so we'll be able to get up there and spend some time. So I'll I'll send, you know, it's funny,
1: man. I went, uh, I went to, to Aspen back in my early 20s and we got high enough up that my cuticles started bleeding for no reason. <laughs> right. And so I t- <laughs> I told myself that I, I don't think altitude is for me. Well, when you live and in- another funny story about that exact about that exact same trip. Another funny story is we uh, I'm sure you've done this before because you were in Colorado long enough, but we um, drove to the top of Pikes Peak. Uh-huh. And when in you know, if you've done that before, going up is is part of the adventure. Coming down is certainly as much of an adventure because they stop and check the temperature on your brake pads to make sure you're not burning up your brakes. Right, yeah. Uh, in a couple of different places. But um, I'll never forget, we got to the top of Pikes Peak, and there was a guy in a rider truck. And all I could think to myself is, this is not a vehicle that this person owns. Right or drives on a regular basis. How did they feel comfortable enough driving to the top of Pikes Peak in this? The second thing I thought was, it's only about a lane and a half wide going up and down in certain parts with no real guardrail. So I don't think I want to encounter a rider truck at any point along that process.
2: No, for sure. Especially somebody that, that doesn't know what they're doing or whatever, but I'll, 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 I kind of got the same story, but I guess I was the rider truck guy. Um, when Kimberly and I went to Hawaii for our honeymoon, um, there was a beach like two miles out. And I think we were in a Dodge Neon. This was over 20 years ago. And, uh, it, it says plainly right there, do not take your rental cars through the lava field down to the beach. But uh, yeah, I did. So I was one of those guys that you don't want to be renting the car afterward, but we didn't have any issues. So we just kind of moved that little neon through the lava field out to the beach. We had a great day.
1: <laughs> we are leaving on that note, okay. Dodge Neons. Dodge Neons can handle lava fields. You heard it here from Chris Scott. <laughs> there we go. Great. Thanks guys. You've
0: been listening to the Power Producers Podcast.